Well, welcome back to another session. So I'm going to sit on a stool. That way it's less formal, and that way you feel more comfortable to speak, all right? Because I would love to also hear from you as we're going through this really important topic about the Torah and Sinai and really how to understand it. Uh, if, if, and you know, I don't have all the answers, unfortunately, I wish I did, nor would we be able to really get to all of them within like the next hour and a bit, but laying a foundation and, and kind of bringing up some of these important questions, you know, if, if you're in the Messianic movement or if you're around there, you probably heard phrases like under the law, right? And it's obviously a, a New Testament translation, uh, translation from Greek, are we under the law? Are we not under the law? Do you have freedom? And these things are juxtaposed and you need to kind of take a step back and ask, what is the law? What law are you talking about? What law was Paul talking about? What was the law at that time? What is the law of Sinai? How do we understand it? And I feel like those questions aren't really wrestled with enough, and they should be a little bit more. So uh, this is my attempt at doing that. Uh, the topic, obviously, for me is, is extremely interesting. Um, I, I like studying Torah. I, I like seeing law codes. Um, and my views about its application for life have changed in my, in my own personal application. So, uh, I am very willing to hear from everyone else and continue for my mind to be kind of morphed on this, uh, on this subject. Cause I mean, if, if any, if there's any topic where that whole two Jews, three opinions thing applies, especially in the messianic movement, it is this one here. Okay. So, uh, messianic Jewish world or the Christian world, um, this, this, the whole thing about the law is a debate. Uh, within the Christian world, if you guys are, are you know, you find your home in churches, uh, what do they usually do with the law? Does anyone know how they split up the law? What is it? Not, uh, not necessarily. It's, yes, the, yeah, what you call tripartite, three, three parts. You have the ceremonial, you have the civil laws, and you have the moral laws. Uh, those are three ways to split it up, which is helpful in order to understand it. The issue is the theological conclusions that generally they come to. So Thomas Aquinas, for example, who's obviously very instrumental and has written a lot of good things, he argued that out of the ceremonial, civil, and moral, only the moral still applies, right? So all that stuff about, you know, um, you know marriage laws, all the ceremonial, all the, the things about sacrifices, that you could throw out. That's irrelevant, but you have the moral. And the reason they say that, and it's interesting, is because you know what when you're reading Genesis and you know what God says about Abraham? God says about Abraham, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And you got to think, what laws was Abraham keeping? Right, So on that basis, that's why Thomas Aquinas says the moral law was always in effect. We just got the ceremonial and civil at Sinai, but thanks to Yeshua, those things are gone. Uh, you also have that in the Westminster Confession of Faith where it says, and this is big for if you're in a Reformed tradition, the moral law does forever bind us all as well as justified persons to the obedience thereof. So the moral law is kept up. Now, does anyone want to name a problem with that type of theological conclusion. This tripartite law and then only one is applicable. There's nothing explicitly in scripture that says that, uh, you know, by the way, uh, two-thirds of it are ex Uh That's true. Uh, also, the fact that when scripture actually talks about the law, do they talk about it in three parts? They talk about it as a unit, right? As the Torah or as the law of Moses or something of that sort. In Joshua 8.31, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the 
law of Moses, not the three parts. Also, when you get to James 2.10 in the New Testament, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one is you know, responsible for breaking all of it. So in the same way, you cannot just split them apart. Also, another thing to consider is um, if, you're, if you're really into kind of like prophecy and the future, you know, what does Ezekiel speak about in Ezekiel 40 through 48? Does anyone know? He speaks about the third temple. What, what do they do at a temple? Some ceremonial laws going on there, right? Okay, so you cannot just throw out all ceremonial laws and all civil laws and say they're irrelevant if Ezekiel speaks about a future time when the temple will be um, back up. So that's one way that people have dealt with the law. Uh, in the Messianic Jewish world, at least the one that I'm part of, uh, generally, you know, like I kind of grew up in one where uh, the law was um, rendered inoperative is the general terminology that's used. Um, my own views have changed on that part, but you have uh, a lot, like within the Jewish world, they would quote from, say, Galatians 3, 24 through 25, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to the Messiah, so we'd be justified by faith. Now that we have faith, we're no longer under the tutor, right? So there's no more need for the law, right? And so in my mind, it was like, oh, that settles it. And then you start to read Acts, okay? And in Acts, you start to see that they don't have that type of interpretation, in Acts 15, for example, you know, today there's the big debate, can Jews believe in Jesus, right? It's like 2,000 years ago, the big debate was, can Gentiles believe in Jesus? And, and I don't know, not have to become Jews. In Acts 15, that's what they're discussing. Do Gentiles need to convert to being Jewish? You know, whatever that was at that time. And, and the conclusion was, you know, why should we put our responsibilities, our yoke on them? No, let them just do these four things because Moses is preached in the synagogues. And the presumption is, as Jews, of course we continue to live as Jews. The difference is just for Gentiles. So they were under every impression that you're still living covenant faithful life in terms of obedience to Torah. Uh, I'm going to read here from Acts 21, 20 through 24. Sorry, I should have pulled it up. I'm going to read it. This is where James uh, addresses Paul uh, in terms of an accusation. And this is what James says to him. He says, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have come to believe, and they are zealous for the Torah. They're zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children. What then is to be done? Right? So the whole thing is James is approaching Paul saying, Hey, listen, people are telling, or people have these rumors that you're telling them not to follow the Torah. Therefore, what must we do so that people know that you follow the Torah. So that's why, you know, when you juxtapose Paul's statement in Galatians, and again, like, you know, we said last night, one of the hard things with, with letters uh, that we have, I mean, obviously the scriptures are sufficient in all that they are. However, these letters are one-way letters, right? They're, they're addressing something. So if you wrote me and you said, boy, my Jewish identity is what gives me salvation, I would probably write to you, your Jewish identity does absolutely nothing. It is of no, no worth in that realm. And then, you know, party three takes my email and goes, oh man, Michael is an anti-Semite or something like that, right? No, I'm just responding to this bad thing. So if people say that the circumcision is for um, salvation, then yeah, Paul's responding strongly against that, but that doesn't mean he's against the, the, the covenant that God calls us to and how that uh, goes with the law. So uh, when you juxtapose these two things, you're always trying to wrestle with, on the one hand, what do they really mean, what do they believe, and then how much of my own worldview am I putting onto them? So those are some of the questions that we're going to be, you know, constantly bringing up as we go through this. Um, so here, 
you know, we, we spoke yesterday about the two types of, of uh, covenants. Does anyone remember what they are? Suzerain Vassal Treaty and the Royal Grant. Now, which one was more conditional? Suzerain Vassal Treaty was a conditional one, and that's what we're going to see. And what I mean by that is that in this structure, if you disobey the commandment or if you disobey the law, the covenant could be broken. Whereas in the Royal Grant, it cannot be broken. There could be repercussions, but it will not be broken. Now, the, the, what I'm going to call Mosaic Law, the, the Law on Sinai, it's a suzerain vassal treaty. The covenant of the structure is one that could be broken. The question is, what happened to it? Was it completely nullified? Was it renewed? Um, but here's a distinction that I want to make, you know, as, as we're going forward and I don't know if people's ears are kind of perked up to, does Michael think that the law is, is done away with or something like that, which is a hot topic. Um, I want to make a distinction between covenant and law, okay? The covenant is the type of relationship that you have, whether conditional or unconditional. And the law are the regulations in that covenant. Now, the laws could change. And we see that in examples with Hittite contracts, right? You, you have a suzerain who says to a vassal, I don't want you to go ever make an alliance with Egypt. Unless I make an alliance with Egypt, then you better go make an alliance with Egypt also right? The laws could change. So these two things should be held as separate. So uh, spoiler alert, even though the Mosaic code could be broken and what I believe was the, the new covenant that God gave doesn't mean the Torah is done away with by any means. When God says, I'm going to write it on your heart, what Torah is he speaking about but the one given here? So uh, we're going to kind of deal with this in this, in our session here, we're going to deal with these two things, the covenant establishment, and then how to understand Torah, how to understand law codes in the Hebrew Bible. Um, within, um, within recent publications, um, if you've ever heard of John Walton, for example, he writes a lot on, you know, ancient Near Eastern backgrounds or Christine Hayes at Yale University. There's a lot of conversation about Torah and about the law. And here's the thing, you and I are very impacted by Greco-Roman mentality. We're Western uh, at the end of the day, at least in how we address our laws. So it's very tit for tat. It's very comprehensive. Everything has to be covered. You need to give all the dimensions, all that kind of stuff. That's a very Greco-Roman way to think about it. The argument as of late is the Mesopotamian way to think about it. The one that Moses had was the law was not supposed to be comprehensive, tit for tat. It was more general. It gave precedence so that judges and Levites could make ruling decisions, right? And so what that means is the way it's given to us, there is interpretation for it. Uh, there, there is supposed to be interpretation and application for it. It's not supposed to be so, some comprehensive element to it. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to talk about that a little bit later and the importance of, um, uh, you know, as I'm studying this, the importance of leadership in terms of interpretation, you know, I think, I mean, at least I'm very impacted by like Sola Scriptura and, and the Reformation and, you know, read the word on your own and get to it. But at the end of the day, when you live in a community, you see that there, there are rulings uh, that you follow. So we'll get into all that. But um, yeah, big thing is that the Torah was given to us, not just as law codes, but also in narrative as a story, a story about Moses. So we're going to kind of explore the story of Moses a little bit um, remember God, he gave the, uh, he gave the, uh, Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, 17. And what did he say in Genesis 15 about the land? He said, you're going to inherit the land, but where are you going to go for a little while? Egypt, right. For 400 years, you're going to go into Egypt. And so that's kind of where our story picks up. And, uh, Rabbi Silverman brought this up this morning. You know, when they went down into Egypt at the end of Genesis, things are good. 
You know, Joseph is the man and he kind of saved everybody and everyone appreciates him. And then, you know, we always say like everything's written for a reason. The the author, they're trying to like bring you along on a story. And then you get to verse eight. And what does verse eight say? Does anyone remember? A new, yeah, a new uh, Pharaoh arose who did not know Egypt, um, Egypt, who did not know Joseph. Thank you. And so then, you know, automatically there's bad news that's coming. Long story short, you could use this synopsis next time you're celebrating Passover. Uh he wanted to kill all the Jewish boys. They enslaved them. They wanted to kill all the Jewish boys. However, one Jewish boy was preserved. Moses, he was brought into the Pharaoh's house. He stayed there for 40 years. After 40 years, he came out. He saw his uh, Hebrew brother, which is actually extremely interesting, the fact that he still had an affiliation with the Hebrews. He knew who he was. Uh, he knew that they were outside and that he was part of them. Um, but anyway, so he saw that happening. He killed the guard. Uh, the, the guard who was attacking the Hebrew uh, slave, and then Moses took off. And so here's a little, a little map. He was living over here in Goshen. He was living in the palace. And then when he had to run because there was a death warrant on his head for killing the Egyptian, he went all the way to the land of Midian. And he stayed there for another 40 years. And life was good. He was married to the daughter. Presuming, I presume he got along with his father-in-law because uh, they're, they're close a little later on. He, he married the, the daughter of a priest, Zipporah. He had two children there. They settled down really well. So he probably thought, good, 80 years old, not too bad. And then one day he's tending some sheep on Mount Horeb, which is later known as uh, Mount Sinai, or depending on what text you're, you're reading, it kind of fluctuates back and forth. And this is where he has the famous burning bush incident. And so this is what it says here. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Right? Presumably. Who wouldn't? Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. So this is his interaction, as far as we know, the first one with the Lord. And just as a quick aside, you know, when you're reading through the scriptures and you see the angel of the Lord, which is really the messenger of the Lord, uh, you know, have your, your eyes and your ears kind of peek up in terms of what's actually being said here, because, you know, you, you have some interesting narratives. For example, when uh, Jacob was wrestling, it says that he was wrestling with the man and they wrestled all night. However, when he left, he said, I saw God face to face. You have with Samson's parents when the angel of the Lord came to them and then they were sure that they were going to die because they saw they said that we saw God. And so then the question is, is it God? Is it a messenger of God? Is it just carrying the uh, like the name of God? But the, the thing that makes it hard about this messenger of the Lord is that he also has the qualities. If you notice with Moses, it's on fire and now the, the ground becomes holy, right? So it's not just someone who's conveying God's message. It's someone who really represents his presence. And so some people argue that the, the messenger of the Lord is really Yeshua, um, particularly because in, in John it says no one has ever seen the Father, they've seen the Son, and so every emanation of God in the Hebrew Bible is Yeshua. Um, I, you could take that or leave that, but uh, either way, when you see angel of the Lord, make sure that your ears uh, perk up on that one. And so God tells them here that they're going to go out and they're going to deliver the Israelites. Now, you can imagine what's going through Moses' head at this point, right? Apart from a talking bush, where he's probably wondering what's, what's happening. In the worldview of Moses, the reason that Egypt was a world power is because they had the strongest gods, right? So let's say Egypt fought against Canaan. 
The reason Egypt would win is because their gods are stronger. They're doing the sacrifices, right? That's why the gods are so intertwined in everything. And yet here's Moses. He's out in the desert and he meets a God who says that, hey, I'm the God of the people who are enslaved by this world empire. We're actually going to go there and I'm going to cast judgment on their gods. And Moses is thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know. Are you going to be, are you going to be, you know what I mean? Like this is a story of if you ever, like the new kid on the block or, you know, like uh, the kid who comes into the schoolyard and takes down the bullies, like that's what's happening in this story. God's saying, we're going to go in there and we're going to cast judgment because you've taken my people for too long. And so Moses naturally is hesitant. And so what he does is he proposes a couple of reasons why he should not go, uh, which I, I think is quite natural going, you know, being that you're going back to a place you had to run away from. And his first question that he asks is, you know, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt, right? So on the one hand, he's absolutely right. He's been out of the metropolis for 40 years. He's been out of the city. It's changed. He's not really sure. Also, he was on Egypt's most wanted list. Why? Like, who am I to go? They're not going to listen to me. And then God tells him, I'm going to be with you. Okay. First objection settled. Second, will they listen? And this, is, this one is directed more towards Israel. You know, what if they will not believe me, he says in Exodus 4.1, or listen to what I say, for they may say the Lord has not appeared to you, right? And you could very well say, listen, his brothers were slaves. They were getting whipped. They were being hurt. And he grew up in the palace. He grew up in luxury. Why would they follow him? He was uh, uh, privileged in that respect. And then what God did is he showed him the miracles. He, he took uh, the snake that turned into the stick. He took, did leprosy. It showed that God was in control. And then finally, a personal objection. I am slow of speech, which um, I actually, I, I read something that uh, this may imply that he didn't know the language anymore quite as well, rather than a stutter or something of that sort. Um, either one, e- either way, he wasn't secure in his ability to, to go. And so God provided someone. But you see with each objection, God responds. And you know what? Moses, I think, was quite right. It was quite right for Moses to be insecure about going. You know, uh, the, the fact that he wasn't the best candidate. He grew up in luxury while his people were in slavery. The fact that he was the most wanted on Egypt's list. The fact that he took off for 40 years and abandoned the community. And yet, despite all those pretty good reasons not to go, he submitted. And he went back, just like Abraham submitted. Without all the answers, they obeyed and they went. And that's the type of people the Lord could use radically. Those who don't have all the answers but continue to go. And you really see this juxtaposition, you know, you have Pharaoh on one side and Moses on the other. And it's funny, you know, like they have similarities between them. They both kind of grew up in a palace. They're both leaders over their people. They both believe in supernatural elements. And when God approaches them, they both ask a similar question. They both say, what is his name? What is is your name? Right? When God went to Moses, Moses said, what is your name that Israel will believe in you? When God went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, who is Adonai that I should believe in him and that I should let Israel go. They both kind of asked the same question, but came out to radically different responses. Why? Because one submitted and the other one didn't. And that's always a choice that we have in terms of when we come to the word, when we're convicted by the spirit, there's always that, no, I'm going to rationalize it and I'm going to do it myself or, okay, Lord, even though I don't have all the answers, I'm going to submit. And that's what we see with Moses and how the Lord was able to use him mightily. So one thing led to another, 10 plagues brought them out of Egypt And then we get to Mount Sinai. Now he brings them back to the place where we had the burning bush. And we come to Exodus 19. Here in Exodus 19, 
we have the statement, um, now therefore, if you obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the people. And the people responded, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? So there was already an agreement. Now, it's, it's important to keep this narrative in mind. You know, like, like Rabbi Silverman brought up this morning, uh, when God heard the cries of Israel, what did he remember? His covenant with Abraham. Right, that they are his chosen people. And so people uh, today, they kind of portray the, the law of Moses or at least, you know, the Pharisees at the time of Jesus or something like that as, oh, you know, they were just trying to attain their righteousness by following after the laws or something of that sort. But what you see with this narrative, it wasn't a means of, of pleasing God so that you could become his people. It was a matter of being in fellowship with God because you were his people. And that's what we're getting here, are the laws to be in fellowship with God. They were already elected. Nothing could break that. So this isn't, uh, if you do this, then you'll be my people. That's not what it was based on. So we get to Exodus 19. And uh, here, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. Does someone have their Bible open? Okay. Um, I just have the notes here. So I'm going to take a little bit of a risk that I wrote all the verses down. Can someone read Exodus 19, verse 3? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you off at like some points. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 3. Okay, thank you. He what? All right. Can someone read in Exodus 19, verse 7? Okay, thank you. So Moses went up, then Moses went back, down. Okay, can someone read verse 8? And I'll, I'll save you the rest of the time. So about four times, Moses goes up, Moses goes down, Moses goes up, Moses goes down. Now, what do you call someone who does that? A, a mediator, a messenger, someone who goes in between, right? So right from the very get-go, Moses was set up as this mediator going up and down and up and down between the people and God. And, you know, this notion of, of mediation, um, the big sin, right, that's often highlighted with, um, with uh, Israel right after they receive the Torah is the golden calf incident, right? And they say, you know, it's that, that they were worshiping a different God or worshiping, but it wasn't. It wasn't really a different God. That's not what they were doing. It's not, they didn't, in their minds, they weren't thinking they're worshiping a different God, but they perverted the way to worship God. It was the structure that they did. You see, what they were looking for in that golden calf was a new mediator. When Moses was up on the mountain, this is what it says. They say to Aaron, come, let us, let us uh, find a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. We need a new Moses. We need a new mediator. And that's what the golden calf was. So it wasn't just idolatry in terms of worshiping someone else, but they perverted the mode of worship. They went back to their ways that they were familiar with in Egypt. And God's saying, no, we're going to worship in this specific way here. And so when people uh, bring up, you know, like a Jewish objection to the Messiah, we don't need a mediator. We go directly to God. Actually, part of God's very structure right from the beginning was mediation, whether through the, the, the prophets or in this case through Moses and ultimately through Messiah. So we see Moses being set up as a mediator. And, you know, usually with, with idols, the way it functions, you know, you have an idol and the idea is that the deity goes into the idol. And so then you sacrifice to it and then they're, they're happy. Um, but God knows our tendency that we stop focusing on the, the person or the God is supposed to represent and we start focusing on the item itself. We turn that into our God. Um, I remember I went to Israel uh, quite a few years ago and, you know, part of the tour was like, hey, let's go see where Jesus was and where Jesus walked and may have, uh, you know, been, been crucified. And so we went and it's just, it's kind of amazing to see, 
the amount of reverence people give to these locations and kissing it and this and that. And you kind of wonder, like, hey, are we missing the point a little bit? Like, this is just supposed to point forward to something. It's not an end in and of itself. So, 19, we have the going up and down, up and down. Everyone agrees. And then finally, in Exodus 20, we have the suzerain vassal treaty. We have the contract that is being made. Any questions or objections up to this point? I think it's relatively clear. Okay. So here we have the suzerain vassal uh, treaty. Now, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to kind of compare it to uh, a treaty that was made in, with a, a Hittite community. Um, there's, you know, there's these books called The Context of Scripture, four volumes, and they have all these contracts in them, Hittite, Assyrian, and you could find great parallels between the Hebrew Bible and those. And so this is a 14th to 13th century uh, BCE contract. Now, uh, Morshili. Okay, can someone say Morshili? Okay, Morshili is the king of Haiti. We're going to call him M. Morshi M, okay? M is the king, and then you have Dupi Tishub. Okay, D, okay. S, uh, M and D, okay? So you have a suzerain, the king, and you have a vassal. And the contract that's going on is essentially M. He had a really good relationship with D's grandfather and father, but the father just died. So what M did is he took D and put him on the throne, right? But here's the thing, we're going to have a contract. You got to make sure to pay this amount. You got to make sure to do this. And in turn, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to do that stuff for you. In the event that you don't do that, you're going to be killed. That's the, that's the contract. So with that in mind, we're going to kind of juxtapose these two things. Uh, here we have in Exodus 20, this is verses one, uh, I believe just one. And every suzerain vassal treaty will begin with a preamble. And a preamble, you're essentially identifying the greatness of the speaker, who the speaker is. So in the Hittite contract, it'll say M, the great king of, of Haiti, the, the great king of the Hittites who won in this war and that war and so on, right? And you have a similarity in, the, in Exodus where it says, I am the Lord your God. You're identifying who this is. I am not just Adonai, I am the one who is going to rule over you. Next, you have a historical prologue. You know, like if you, if you have a contract, there's always a structure. This is a structure for the suzerain vassal treaty. The historical prologue is essentially, why is this contract even taking place? And so H, well, no, not H, M would say, I just enthroned you. Your father died. I just enthroned you. That's why you're indebted to me. That's why we're having this contract. In the Hebrew Bible, we see, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. That's why you're indebted to the Lord. He's the one who just redeemed you out of the land of slavery. Then you have the stipulations. Okay, because I owe you one or many, these are the stipulations that you must follow. Now, of course, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it goes for a long time, the stipulations. You first, you have the Decalogue, which we're going to discuss, which are the Ten Commandments. And then you have uh, the Covenant Code, which we're going to kind of see how those two relate together. But those are the main stipulations of what you need to follow. There's actually two types of laws. Um, if this sounds, you have apodictic, and casuistic. Does anyone, has that, does that sound familiar? Okay. Apodictic, straightforward. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this. Casuistic, conditional. If this happens, then do that. If that, then that. So those are the two types of, of laws that you see going on here. You have the stipulations, you have the deposit of the covenant. You see this in Exodus 24, where Abraham, he, uh, sorry, Moses, he puts blood on it. Uh, everyone agrees that they're going to follow it. And we see this elsewhere in terms of revivals. Ezra, Nehemiah, they have a, a proclamation uh, reading out of the Torah. Josiah, they do a similar thing. 
So you have the deposit of the covenant itself, and then you have divine witnesses. Now, again, if you were here this morning, you know that the Hebrew Bible doesn't really acknowledge the existence of other gods. In the Hittite contract, it says, you know, this God and that God and that God and that God are witnesses, and they're going to cast judgment on you. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, the only thing that is possibly a parallel is in Deuteronomy 30, where it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, if you, you know, so you are accountable. And then finally, blessings and curses. And so uh, the idea here is that if, if in uh, the case of the Hittites, if you disobey, you're going to be killed. In the case of Israel, what happens if they disobey? Exile. You're going to be kicked out of the land if you disobey. Now, it does say in Deuteronomy 17 that you will be cut off if you engage in idolatry, and you do see those judgments happening. But as a nation, if you reject the Torah, you will be kicked out of the land. And the reason for that, you see this much more in Leviticus, but you, know, you, you have a personification of land that it spews you out when you sin, that it's kind of like sacred space. It's God's chosen land, which he, which he gave. Now, the fundamental difference, you see these similarities here, right? Both contracts have almost every, everything in common, but there's one fundamental difference. With the Hittites, if D disobeys, the gods are going to come and they're going to kill him. In the Hebrew Bible, if Israel disobeys, they're going to be kicked out of the land, but they will never be cut off. Why? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. It is absolutely impossible for them to do it. So this covenant really guides living in fellowship with God in the land of Canaan, which is what we see here. So let's take a, a look at some of the, the stipulations um, that we have. So the first section is the Ten Commandments, right? This is kind of point three here. Let me just point three of uh, the stipulations. You have the Book of the Covenant. So we're going to look. The first part is the Decalogue. Uh, does anyone know what the Decalogue is? Ten Commandments. I just say that. Yeah. We're not going to deal with all of them. I just want to give, give some context, the importance of knowing the historical background to understand uh, these laws. The, the Ten Commandments are really the base. They're really the foundation. Like if I could say that the Abrahamic Covenant is kind of the backbone to the covenants, the Ten Commandments are kind of the backbone to the Torah. They're kind of the backbone to the law. Um, you have the first four, which are focused on God. They're vertical. The next six are focused on people. They're horizontal. And when the lawyer came to Yeshua and he said, what is the most important law? What is the, the heftiest law? Yeshua responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things are put very closely together. And you see that right in the Decalogue. You love God first, and that gives you the ability to love each other. The whole Torah, you know, if you, if you kind of have like a zoom thing going on, you know, you zoom in closely and you got 613 laws. You zoom out a little bit and you have the Decalogue. You zoom out even more, you have love God and love people. And the study of Torah should always, always encourage those two things or else we're missing the point, to love God and to love people. You actually see this in uh, rabbinic literature. If you've ever heard of the story of, of the, the non-Jewish person who went to, do you, you know Rabbi Shammai and, and Hillel? Okay, so Shammai was stricter. They, they kind of disagreed on how to apply certain laws and Shammai was stricter and Hillel was more liberal um, or lenient, however you want to uh, phrase it. And uh, so there's a story about a non-Jewish person who says, I want to convert, uh, teach me the entire Torah while I stand on my foot, one foot. And so Shammai uh, chased him out with a club. Right, get out of here. You're not serious. Then he went to Hillel and he said, okay, I want to convert. Uh, I'm going to stand on one foot, teach me the entire Torah. And Hillel said, what is hateful to you, uh, to your fellow, do not do. That's the entirety of the Torah. Everything else is elaboration. Everything else is commentary, right? So the idea is loving God and loving people is the heartbeat of the Torah. 
And, and that's what we see here. So in the Decalogue, you have 10 commandments. Does anyone know why there are 10? We do not know why there are 10. I remember watching the Mel Brooks movie. Uh, I don't remember what it was called, but uh, where Moses comes down, he has 15 commandments. Do you guys see that? And he's about to proclaim it, and then he trips, and one fell and broke, and he pretends there were only 10. <laughs> so that, that's probably not the, the actual reason. Um, you do see 10 in Scripture. Um, in, in the book of Ruth, Boaz, he calls 10 people to make a legal decision. So you have 10 there. Uh, the notion that there are 10 plagues, some people say 10 is completion um, in order to, I don't know, cast a full judgment. I'm not really sure why there are 10, but what really sets apart the Decalogue is the fact that God said it. God said it to the entire community. And then after that, they said, okay, this is too much. Moses, you go before us, which again reinforces that mediator component. But um, that's what makes these very unique. So, excuse me, let's just take a look at a couple First, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, does this raise any flags for anyone? If you drove to Bethlehem Messiah Congregation and you saw a sign that said, no other flying cars are allowed, what would you think? There are flying cars. Someone has a flying car. I got to find out who. Um, so when you read this, no other gods before me. So you have to think, does this advocate that there are other gods out there? So a couple of things. Uh, first, I think that this could encompass... Uh, demonic beings as well. It could, it, it could encompass anything that's, that's supernatural, that you don't have those types of allegiances. But more importantly, I don't think that this is teaching there are other gods by any means. In Deuteronomy, which is a retelling of the law, right before they, they give this law, it's explicit that there is no other god in heaven or on earth, right? That God is the only one. You saw in the creation account, there's no question that, that there's only one God. So what does this really mean, or at least how is it applicable to us? If any of you have ever read Timothy Keller's work, on counterfeit gods, uh, he essentially makes the argument that um, we can make, when we make something, and it can be anything, when we make something an ultimate thing, it becomes our God. The thing that determines our mood, the thing that determines what we wake up for, what we go to sleep for, that is our God, right? And so the idea is even blessings from God, your children, you know, your spouse, your job, things like that, they could become your God when your self-worth is found in them. So even though we could say, well, I'm a monotheist, so no problem for me, this is equally as applicable to everybody. Uh, this notion that we can make anything our gods, and generally we make ourselves our own gods. And you, you know, you see that with Samson. Uh, you know, God gave him the gifts in Judges 14 through 16 to, to do great things, to deliver Israel. And what did he do? How did he use his gifts? To kind of indulge his own passions, right? He became his own determiner, his own God. So God says here, you shall have no other essentially things that, that place, that take the place of God, right? Like God doesn't want to be first in your life. I don't think he cares to be first in your life. What he wants to be is at the center. He wants to be like the, the core that makes the decisions for everything else, not just a priority list. So he's saying no other core things but him. And that's, that's full allegiance. And he says, no other gods before me. And the term before me, it means at the same time as me. It's used in Numbers uh, 3, 4, where it says Eliezer and Ithmar served as priests at the same time as Aaron before Aaron. And so the reason he says, don't have any other gods before me at the same time as me is because God is a jealous God. He's one, and the reason he's jealous is because of his, his desire for our allegiance. That's what he deserves. And at the time of Moses, you know, you were able to have multiple gods. You had your personal god, you had your family god, and then you had your national god, 
which is why when you read a story about David, he has idols in his house. Or with, with Jacob, you know, they're carrying idols in their home also because you have these different levels of God. And so when Israel is out in idolatry, if you go, sp- if you go speak with like the priests of Baal or something, they probably wouldn't say, oh, the God of Israel doesn't exist. But what they would say is in conjunction with the God of Israel, we need rain, so we worship Baal, right? That's the difference here. It's not just exclusion. So what God is saying is none of that. No one to no one else, only to me. You know, so for even in our own lives, you know, the fact that we have God as, as, you know, we could treat God like he's the God of my salvation, right? He's the God that dictates big things in my life. But daily priorities, this other thing is in control, right? God's saying, no, he needs to be in control 100%. So that's the main one here. And that kind of, you know, uh, bleeds into everything else. You have no images or deities. This has been understood as, um, as uh, kind of like banning art because it, it may make you, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of worship whatever item that is. I think the notion of images and deities, idols, it's the whole thing of you're putting your focus on something that's supposed to bring you to God. You start focusing on that instead. And we have things like this all the time. For example, uh, doctrinal accuracy could very well become an idol. It's something that's supposed to bring us closer to God, but it could become an end in and of itself. Right, so he, war- he warns no images, no deities, which is really uh, mind-blowing for people who just came out of Egypt. Do not misuse God's name, which is, um, it's not just saying like, oh my goodness, but it's more like uh, false oaths, uh, something like that, swearing by God. And then finally, you have the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is an interesting one because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. But then what if, uh, what about exceptions to it? And that's really, that's really where you see the difference in Mesopotamian law. For example, let's say my wife was starting to give birth on the Sabbath. Can I get in the car and can I speed? You know, is that okay? Or must I say, no, this is an absolute law. What are the circumstantial elements that help us to um, inform us on this? And so you actually see this in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, who works during the Sabbath? Priests. What do they do when they're walking around the... the um, uh, my goodness, in, in Joshua, um, the tower, and it's not the Tower of Babel, Jericho. How many days did they walk around for? So on the seventh day, they're still walking, right? You're still doing that work. So there are, although these laws are given and they're absolutes in a certain sense, there's also circumstantial um, elements that need to go into it. You know, again, can you speed when you have to get to the hospital? Yes, I did when my wife was giving birth. You know, and then just so you know, and then I got into a certain street and then it hit me. I'm, I'm not sure where to go. I'm not sure how to get to the hospital, but my wife did, which, you know, anyway, so that was, my wife's very gracious to me. Um, so yeah, so what, what you see here is that even though these laws are given, there's room for interpretation. And that's really what brings us to the next section here. Uh, what you, what we have is the covenant code. And this is more, you know, again, uh, just to give some, some uh, details of this section right here, it has both apodictic and casuistic laws, right? Both absolutes as well as circumstantial laws uh, contained in here. So for example, an absolute law, you shall not allow a sorceress to live, whereas a conditional law, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh year, he shall go out. So it's more circumstantial. And so, you know, you have to kind of wonder um, how you get absolute laws with circumstantial elements. And that's where I think judges and leaders in the community come in. Um, and, and that's why we need that type of structure.
So here the covenant code is in Exodus 21. It says, now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. Ordinances are like, you know, case laws. And what you see here are elaborations on the Decalogue. So, for example, if I tell you, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, okay? But what if your neighbor bore false witness against you four times over, and by bearing false witness once, you're only getting back what he took from you? Is that okay? I don't know. That's, that's the whole thing. With the law, it's giving an absolute, but then the question is, how do you apply that law? So in Exodus uh, 20, verse 16, you have this don't bear false witness. And then in Exodus 23, you have an elaboration on it. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 3. It says, don't bear false, don't, uh, you shall not bear a false report. Okay, then it goes on. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a, mal- a malicious witness. Okay, so you're not allowed to go along with a malicious, uh, as a malicious witness. Uh, you shall not follow the masses in doing evil, so don't do anything bad, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after the multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in dispute. So it's not just helping the wicked, you're not even supposed to be partial to a poor man. So here you already have interpretation of don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That means on both sides of the equation. And then it gives you an example. If you meet your enemy's ox uh, or his donkey wandering away, so you're, you're not doing anything, right? Someone cut you off in traffic, they get out of their car, and then you kind of see the car like, you know, rolling away a little bit because it's, it's manual. What do you got to do? If you see that, you shall surely return it to him, right? So it's applying this, this law. It's about being honest in all of your dealings. So you see right from the get-go the importance of application and elaboration on the Torah. So again, when someone says, are you under the Torah? Are, are we under the law? I'm not under the law anymore. Like, what are you talking about? Like, there's so much that goes into interpreting and understanding the Torah. To give it such a blanket statement isn't very helpful. And you see the same thing with Sabbath laws. There's more elaborations on it that require halachic decisions. Now, also, another element in the covenant code is you have new laws. Uh, when you look at the Decalogue, you don't hear anything about slaves, about personal injuries. You don't hear anything about protection of property, uh, about residing in the land of Canaan, right? Those are all kind of added later on. So the whole purpose of, you know, juxtaposing these two things, the Decalogue and the Covenant Code, is not only to give kind of the confines of the Torah about the Sinai Covenant, what it actually was, a suzerain vassal treaty with these law codes embedded in there, but it's to show kind of the malleability of the laws and how they actually function and and we're going to, uh, I'm just going to give a couple of more points. I don't know. I think we're okay on time, right? We're, yeah. Okay. Is anyone falling asleep? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I got a nod, but maybe a, a different question was anticipated. Um, so you have here, okay, so it goes from 21 to 23 in terms of the covenant code. And then in Exodus 24, the closing of it. Now, here's the thing. Um, what comes after Exodus 24, after the closing of the covenant? Yeah, you have the building of the temple, right, which were regulations. And then you have the Levitical priesthood, you have the, you have the Levitical laws, and then the holiness code, and all of that was part of Torah, right? And so there's a, a distinction here between covenant obligation, which is the covenants, the, the laws given within the, the, uh, the covenant uh, structure, and then you have covenant regulations, laws that are given after. And we have examples of this. Those are just as important. They're equally as part of the covenant code. So uh, that's what we have here. That encompasses the Torah on Sinai. It's a suzerain vassal treaty. It is conditional because 
you could be kicked out of the land and it could be broken. And those were the stipulations that they were given. Are there any questions on that? Yeah, yeah, sorry. So, so apodictic, I mean, you know what? Yeah, I mean, these terms, just think uh, like absolute is apodictic, absolute. And then casuistic is conditional. A, absolute, C, conditional. And that's just how they're presented. Um, you are not allowed to do this, but the, the next to the casuistic is uh, circumstantial. But yeah, thank you. Good question. Anyone else? Like, yeah, like the development of it and, and like the continual application. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a good point. So right off the bat, you know, like um, I, when I was growing up, it was kind of critiqued, you know, oh, the rabbis, they make all these additional laws, right? And, you know, be that as it may, uh, I'm, not, I'm not of the persuasion that we're under rabbinic um, halakha. Uh, like their, their interpretation of the law, but you see it right from this, from the beginning. There is the law given and then there's the case laws that, that were given as well. There's already a wrestling with it in terms of how to apply it. So the fact that that continues on, I think is very important. Um, anyway, so, so we'll get to that in, in just a second. Uh, anyone else in terms of Sinai covenant? Does it make sense? It was predominantly how to live within the land. Okay. Now we have the laws of the Hebrew Bible and here I just want to just mention a couple of points. Uh, again, you have various different types of laws. Uh, you have the Decalogue that we mentioned. You have the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 20 through 23. The Cultic Decalogue in Exodus 20, 34. That's like, that's the renewal of it, which there are differences. The Priestly Code, the Holiness Code, and so on. So you have different, different structures of laws. And if you have a critical scholar, and what, what I mean is if you have someone who doesn't uh, believe that the Bible necessarily came from God, then they would usually argue that these law codes are from different communities. Uh, there's not really, you know, something that kind of holds them together, uh, or they had one and they, they just wanted to change some elements of it, and that's why you have differences uh, between them. Whereas uh, I'm the view that it's all of one, it's, it's all one unit, it's, it all goes together uh, as it's spoken about, but you want to let the law speak for itself. I don't think there's an absolute unity to it. You have to take circumstances into consideration. And this is really, when I mentioned John Walton, this is what John Walton is saying, that you know, Greco-Roman law was tit for tat, it was A to B and, and so on. Mesopotamian law not only functioned as case law, but it was also wisdom literature. It was guiding you as a king. You had to write down the Torah. It was guiding you on how to make these legal decisions. Right When Solomon had to make a legal decision about cutting a baby in half, he didn't look to the Torah, right? But he used the principles of a mother loving her child for, for making that legal decision. So that's really uh, what you see here. So the function of Torah, you know, Greek versus uh, Persian. And um, I mean, no, I already explained this, uh, essentially. Um, you know, the, one of the books that was, it was uh, questioned whether it should be in the canon was uh, Proverbs. Does anyone know why? Because does anyone, you know, the, the apparent contradiction in Proverbs and Proverbs 24, uh, don't answer a fool according to his folly and then answer a fool according to his folly, like right next to each other. It's not a contradiction. It's wisdom literature, right? It's saying different circumstances require different rulings. And so having that mindset, that's what you apply to Torah um, in, in terms of understanding it. So in terms of looking at the characteristics of the Torah itself, you see variety in the Torah. You see variety and changes within the law codes. Now, um, my dad and I actually just had a, uh, a friendly debate about this uh, very notion because we come from, from uh, different trains of thought where 
Uh, for me, I'm okay with differences. Um, I don't see it as problematic. I think it's different applications. Whereas uh, my dad is, is more everything you know, needs to kind of be in line. So you have to kind of put them together, which wherever you fall on that is, is your prerogative. But one very common example that people bring up is Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15. In Exodus 21, you have the law codes for the slaves. Okay. So in Exodus 21, the law is that you have a male slave and you could have a female slave. The male slave leaves after six years and doesn't get anything in terms of reimbursement but the female slave does not. She, she could become your daughter-in-law. She could be bought, but she does not leave or go free. Okay. Then you get to Deuteronomy and in Deuteronomy 15, again, you have a male slave and a female slave. This time the male's allowed to leave after six years. And so is the woman. Also, they're allowed to leave with items uh, going forward. Now, how do you, you know, is that a contradiction? Does that mean that the whole thing falls apart? Absolutely not. Um, in my mind, always the most important thing is to allow the text to speak for itself. And you, we have to consider the fact that Exodus and Deuteronomy were given at different times, right? Deuteronomy was a retelling of the law. And so the heart of it, uh, one argument that, that I think could be made is that the, the heart of the law was to protect. It was either to protect the woman in both cases, and it's possible that at the time of Exodus, the structure of society was not set up because had a woman gone out and had already been a slave, she would not have been marriageable and therefore she would have been uh, essentially a victim to society, right? Whereas in Deuteronomy, you have a different type of structure going on and therefore she was allowed to go out. And these are the types of things that we need to kind of examine and look at the historical background. But this right here is, is one very common example to show um, a difference, you know, going on. And again, you bring up Proverbs, sorry, it was 26, not 24, you know, where it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool. Different circumstances require different rulings. So first you have a, a variety in the Torah. You also have other varieties that are not like nearly as important. But for example, you know, why do you celebrate the Sabbath? You know, if, if you look at Exodus, you celebrate it because of the creation account. If you read Deuteronomy, you celebrate it because you were led out of Egypt, right? Are they mutually exclusive? No, you know, but it's, but so that, you know, people point to that as a variety. It isn't really, it's just two rationales to, to keep part of the, uh, part of the structure. The second thing is that the Torah is not entirely comprehensive. So if you want to adopt a kid, you don't really have laws in the Torah on how to do that. Whereas when you look at other law codes, you do. But the thing is that the Torah itself notes that that it's not comprehensive. And I think this is a very key text. It was for me in kind of forming my own viewpoints on this, where you get to Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, it starts off verses one through seven. Um, if there's found in your midst or in any of your towns, which the Lord gave you a man who does evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, transgressing the covenant, and he's gone to worship other gods, you shall stone him. Okay. So it's pretty clear. If you commit idolatry, you shall be stoned. And then you get to verse eight. If any case is too difficult for you to decide, meaning it hasn't been written down, if it's too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, or between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, chooses so you shall come to the Levitical priests or the judges. Right? So you have to go to the people who are knowledgeable on these rulings. So, um, right from the get-go, right from the beginning, 
you have this notion that it's not comprehensive. It's not going to answer every single detail, but that's why God elects leaders. You see that in Exodus 18, where Moses selected leaders over the community. You see it here with the judges. And then when you get to Messiah, when you get to Yeshua in the book of Matthew, when he speaks to Peter and he says to him, whatever you have bound on earth will have had been bound in heaven, which is what the Greek is, most understand that as that Peter has the halachic regulation or the, the halachic jurisdiction to make these rulings, right? And so the idea is that you have a new community and you have these rulings going out, which we are supposed to uh, abide by. So here we have Deuteronomy 17, that it's not comprehensive. And what's really interesting here, and it's totally antithetical to our uh, Western kind of uh, you know, if, if you're from like a reformed uh, tradition, which I'm more familiar with, uh, in Deuteronomy 17, you know, in, in the first part of Deuteronomy 17, if you commit idolatry, you're supposed to be killed because of the consequences. And then when you go to the priests and you ask them, whatever they say, you have to abide by or the same consequences, right? So it has just as much authority, which is really interesting. And generally, in, you know, in the Western mindset, we're kind of like, you know, let me decide for myself as I read. But obviously there was a different uh, kind of structure going on here. Now you actually see this type of liberty. Um, there is liberty embedded uh, within Jewish thought. Um, you, you also see it in the Mishnah as well. Uh, for example, in, uh, in Mishnah, on, on the Pesach, on, on dealing with uh, Passover, you know, because the Mishnah is, you know, it's very comprehensive. It tries to uh, deal with all these, uh, like, uh, some minor things, but where it says, where the custom is to do work until midday on the day before Passover, they may do so. Where the custom is not to do work, they may not work, right? So even in law, there's kind of like what your community does, what the leadership has ruled, uh, what they have decreed, that's what you follow. And so that's why choosing your leader, you know, for Israel is choosing their king. For us, it's choosing your leader, one who, who loves God, who loves people, who knows the word of God, who's able to apply it, is really imperative because we are called, if we're not leaders, to go to them for these types of decisions. Um, that doesn't mean there isn't liberty. Paul speaks a lot about liberty uh, in Romans and in Colossians, but I don't think it's just, you know, the Wild West. I think it's within the confines of living a covenant faithful life as a community. So here, not entirely comprehensive, and it requires interpretation and application. So Leviticus 24.10, for example, I have to deal with this text because it has to do with my dissertation because there's a mixed child in there, a child from an uh, intermarried couple. But essentially, you have this child. His mother was an Israelite. His father was an Egyptian. He comes into the midst of the community, and he blasphemes. And then what does Moses do? He doesn't know. They're not sure. So they put this guy in a waiting cell, sort of, and they ask God, what do we do? Does, does he have the same uh, punishment as us? Does he get stoned also? And the ruling is that both the foreigner as well as the native uh, will endure the same punishment. But that, for example, is, is one uh, example that the, you don't know the law, and so therefore, you know, some interpretation has to be found. Also, we see examples of qualifications to the law. Changes, not changes, but qualifications. So in Numbers uh, 9, you have the law about Passover. When are you supposed to celebrate Passover? Four days of Nisan, right? Uh, yeah. So you have that. And then right after you have this articulation of the law, there's this issue where you have a group of people who are not pure, right? So they ask God, and what does God say? The next month, celebrate it, right? So you, already you have qualifications on the law. So this notion of, you know, absolutes, and this is what we must do in the blueprint, the, the scriptures themselves don't present the Torah in that way. Um, there is, you know, wiggle room 
um, especially with, with leadership. Now, all that to be said, does that mean that, well, you could interpret it any way you want and you could reinterpret it and live the way, you know, however you desire? No, there is objectivity in the Torah. Again, Deuteronomy 17, 3, like idolatry is just not one of those things that God tolerates, right? There may be some like wiggle room with the Sabbath, but if you commit idolatry, you are kind of kicked out uh, and you will be killed. So I don't want to pretend like, you know, everything's up for interpretation, but there's a lot in there. And I think when we have these conversations about are we under the Torah, the new covenant, things like that, uh, this should be in the back of our minds. Finally, um, in my life, these two things have been juxtaposed, the Torah and the gospel. And I just think that it's a wrong juxtaposition. Um, they, they address two very different things. The gospel is about our, our salvation. It's about justification, forgiveness of sins. The, the Torah was never a means of salvation. It was a means of instituting social order in order to love God more and love our neighbor more. And, you know, when you get to the New Testament, there's no notion that the law gives you salvation. When you, you know, the young rich ruler, when God, when, when Yeshua said, you follow the commandments, he said, I did. Yeshua didn't say, great, see you there, right? That, that, that wasn't, it wasn't a means of uh, salvation. Hebrew says that the sacrifice of animals never takes away uh, sin. So I just, I never really found this juxtaposition to be very fair. Um, what you do see as a commonality between the two is faith. Faith was always the key. You know, I, I remember uh, there was a guy preaching in Toronto, uh, street preaching, and, and he said, you know, some people ask me, like, how were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus? And I just tell them, we don't know and we shouldn't worry. <laughs> I thought, wow, okay, I'm going to use that. You know what I mean? Like, if, if that's like a, a reasonable response when you don't know the answer to something, you know, why, why have to research it? Uh, but, but it is a big question. You know, how are people saved in the Old Testament, to use that term? But people were always saved. They were always in relationship with God in the exact same way throughout all of Scripture. You were always saved by God's grace and our faith in Him, in His revealed will. It was always being faithful to what He's called us to and believing in Him, like we see with, with Abraham. So I don't um, appreciate this uh, juxtaposition here. But in any case, so that kind of summarizes what the Torah is, the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Again, it's conditional, and it could be broken, and uh, in my view, it was broken, and the, the new covenant kind of takes that, that spot, and we're going to talk about how that works together. However, even though it was broken, because of the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant, the Jewish people were never done away with, and that's the, the key thing to, to understand.